Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Wednesday, October 12th, and today Bill Cohan is here to talk about the almighty headache that Morgan Stanley and other banks are facing as they once again find themselves financing Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter. When Musk first announced the bid in the spring, Wall Street rushed to help him pay for it. Now though, with inflation, rising interest rates, uncertainty in the economy and the markets, and of course, the drama Musk himself has inflicted on the company, the deal doesn't sound like much of a deal at all. Bill has the latest. And later on, Teddy Schleifer is here to discuss a different Elon Musk debacle. The soon-to-be owner of Twitter recently inserted himself into the Russia-Ukraine conflict, and it speaks to the bigger issue of tech leaders feeling the ripple effects of Russia's military action in Europe. Teddy is here to explain how Silicon Valley is responding to the global events that some tech people think may lead to World War III. We'll hear about all that and more in today's episode of Powers That Be. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be, netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Happy Humped, everybody. I'm joined today by Bill Cohan to talk about the ongoing, never-ending, wacky, weird, wild saga of Twitter and Elon Musk. Bill, back in April, I believe, when this deal was first coming together, Morgan Stanley, Bank of America, Barclays, I think, some other banks, like, were all about it. They wanted to finance this deal and help Elon buy Twitter. Now that the deal was off and then back on again, Twitter's value is way down. And I feel like some of these banks are, and you've written this, I don't feel like it, I know this because I read your stuff, including the Elon Wall Street Game of Chicken piece you wrote that's up on Puck. What is going on inside Morgan Stanley right now uh, and some of these other banks as they realize they could lose hundreds of millions of dollars here now that now that this deal is going through at a time when Twitter is just valued at much less uh, than it was at the time of this acquisition? Or they could lose billions, not just hundreds of millions. So... First of all, let's talk about the value of Twitter for a second, because that's important. I mean, the value of any asset is what uh, a buyer will pay for it. And let's just for a minute, and this is crazy, of course, assume that uh, Elon Musk will, in fact, buy Twitter at $54.20 a share in cash, as he said last week he wanted to do now, but and now has until October 
28th to see if, in fact, he can do it. But let's just assume for a minute that he will do it. That means that Twitter, for whatever reason, but the important one being that Elon is, you know, has the money and is supposedly going to buy it, is worth $44 billion because that's what a buyer will pay for it. Now, as soon as the deal closes, however, it's no longer worth $44 billion. Uh, that's the irony here, and that's why everybody involved in this deal is in such a world of hurt. Because the multiple of Twitter's EBITDA, e- Twitter's EBITDA is roughly a billion dollars a year. Let's just say it's a billion, and that's probably being kind. If it's a billion dollars a year, that means the multiple he's agreed to pay for it is 44 times EBITDA, which is insane. Okay, but that's his problem. He wants to pay that. Three quarters of the deal is equity. Of that 44 billion, 31 billion is his equity and that of his partners, 24 billion of which is coming from Elon, 7 billion of which is coming from his partners. Seems to me the moment he closes the deal, that equity is wiped out. I say that because the debt portion of this deal, the $13 billion, is 13 times EBITDA. Now, even though this is a leveraged, quote-unquote, leveraged buyout with 75% equity uh, beneath it, the fact that the senior secured debt is 13 times EBITDA is virtually unprecedented. Senior debt in other LBOs can range from three times EBITDA to maybe five times EBITDA. Maybe the overall debt is six or seven times EBITDA with the difference being made up of subordinated debt. But 13 times debt, even at the wildest times of the recent LBO exuberance, the purchase price, average purchase price for a company in an LBO scenario was kind of like 11 times EBITDA. That includes the equity. So that 11 times is comparable to the 44 times that Elon has paid. So the fact that, you know, 13 times EBITDA is just the senior secured debt portion of this means that this is an incredibly difficult loan to syndicate and should never have been underwritten at 13 times EBITDA. So that's bad on the banks. They've committed to it and they're going to have to eat it. Now, that's like the problem for the banks. But that problem for the banks becomes Elon's problem too. And, and here's why. So what is that debt really worth? Say, you know, they could have somehow come up with seven times EBITDA in debt. That's seven billion of debt. So the 13 billion of debt is really worth seven billion. And just for the sake of argument, let's say it's worth 50% what they, you know, agreed to pay for it. They agreed to pay 13 back in April. That's par. That's 100 cents on the dollar. But unfortunately, with the increase in interest rates and how leveraged this thing is and the overall financial markets and, you know, how crazy Elon is, et cetera, and who knows what his business plan is, if even a, fa- a billion dollars of EBITDA is even sustainable, that debt is now worth 50 cents on the dollar. And that's whether they sell the debt or they don't sell the debt. If they sell the debt, they perfect that loss at 50 cents on the dollar because that's what they have to sell it for to get a yield that uh, an investor would want to have on its books. If they don't sell the debt, they still have to market the market, and it's still going to be marked at 50 cents whether they like it or not. 
So they might as well sell it and get rid of it so they can make room for more uh, deals. If it's 50 cents in the dollar, that's basically saying that the company, Twitter, is worth $7 billion. If the debt is not worth 100 cents and only worth 50 cents, then the equity can't be worth anything. This is like a long way of discovering and a complicated, dramatic way of discovering what I feel like we've known for a long time, which is that like, yes, lots of tech companies are overvalued. Like Twitter specifically was always kind of overvalued. Like they weren't making that much money. Which was fine if they're yeah. growing like a weed. Right. And getting bigger and bigger and more people are coming to the platform, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But those days are over. It's not growing like a weed. Who knows if it's growing at all? People are leaving the platform. I'll tell you, if, if Elon buy, ends up buying it and he brings Donald Trump back onto the platform, more people are going to leave. You think more people will leave than join? Like exuberant conservatives won't get back on? Yes, because conservatives don't use it anyway. Will they, you know, a few of them get on if Trump comes back? Probably, but a lot more of the liberal progressive types that use Twitter will leave. I mean, we've talked about this, Bill, on this podcast before, and there's this, like, weird, like, perverse thing about Twitter's value, which is Twitter is probably not worth $44 billion. And if you go back and look at the, like, the week before it was announced that Elon Musk bought 9% of Twitter, it was trading at, like, $30 a share. Then it shot up to, like, 50 after Elon announced. The deal went through, then it went back down. And so, like, I feel like Twitter, they're making out, like, bandits here. I mean, like, the company itself was, like, trading around, like, $38 yeah. a share before Elon took over. So he drove the stock price up, right. it looks like, and then agreed to buy it at the stock price that he was responsible for. It's really weird. The big winners are Twitter shareholders. Getting $54.20 a share for Twitter in this market is a total gift. It's an overpaying buy, as I said. You know, if it's really worth $7 billion and he's paying 44 that's... You know, six and a half times more than he needs to pay. Twitter shareholders are making out like bandits. The Twitter management and employees are going to be ruining the day that this ever happened because I'm sure he's going to make their lives miserable or fire them or both. Basically, the conclusion of all this is that Elon is wildly overpaying. And as soon as this deal closes, his equity is going to be worthless. Now, does that mean that equity is perfected is worthless? No, he still has an option because I'm sure he's got projections that he's shared with the banks that shows a huge turnaround and that $1 billion of EBITDA is going to grow to something fantastical. But that's not the same as it actually happening, and that's not the same as it happening today. Today, once this deal, the irony is that once this deal closes, Elon's $31 billion of equity or $24 billion and the $7 billion that he's getting from others, it's going to be worthless. It's going to be underwater. And one more point, if he doesn't buy the debt that the banks are selling and it falls into the hands of distressed investors or vulture funds, he's going to lose control of the company. Say Apollo buys the debt at 50 cents on the dollar and then they can't pay, make an interest payment or there's some sort of technical default, Apollo's going to get control of the company and Elon's going to lose his equity. So the only way he can prevent himself from losing that equity today is by buying his own bank's debt at a discount that they have to sell to get it off their books and close this deal because they've committed to it. 
wow, this businessman's playing some five-dimensional chess here, clearly. The only way that Elon has a fighting chance of making this $31 billion of equity worth anything is to put more money in to buy the distressed debt that the banks were going to be selling. And by the way, all of this is a totally self-inflicted wound. None of this had to happen. He didn't need to do any of this. Well, maybe, Bill, the way he makes money is to turn Twitter into, what did he call it, Project X? Like the X app, the super app, whatever that means. Whatever that means. An X app for everything, the everything app. Just what we need. We need Elon Musk to be responsible for everything that we do in life. <laughs> yes. Um, all right, Bill, thanks for your insight as always. Everyone go check out Bill's piece up on Puck. Thanks for talking. Thank you, Peter. When we come back, Ben Landy talks to Teddy about Elon inserting himself into the conversation about how to settle the war between Russia and Ukraine. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am. I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad Bed Cooling System is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for powers that be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.com dot me slash powers because you're not just investing in better sleep you're creating a better life i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month over 70 percent of linkedin users don't visit other leading job sites so if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy here with Teddy Schleifer in San Francisco. How's it going, Teddy? I'm good. Thanks for having me. So Bill was just talking about Elon's troubles with his bankers as this Twitter litigation is hopefully coming to a close. We'll see, um, right. which means he will be going forward with buying this company. But um, as we're recording this, I should say on Tuesday afternoon, there's this sort of astonishing story that is developing in tech and media 
after Ian Bremmer, who runs the global consultancy Eurasia Group, sent a letter to clients saying that Elon Musk had spoken to Vladimir Putin before Elon had tweeted out a proposed peace plan for Ukraine. Um, We can get into the details of what that looked like. Shortly afterwards, Elon denied that he'd spoken to Putin, although again, lots of potential ambiguity there. But Teddy, I wanted to get your 30,000-foot view on what is really going on here and what is some of the missing context. Sure. So uh, before sending this, um, I, I think to some extent this just shows Elon's you know, stratospheric role in, in culture and in international affairs that this is a totally plausible thing that would have happened. Obviously, it would have been and was for the brief hour or two where we thought it was actually true, extraordinarily controversial. You know, obviously, the United States has very carefully calibrated relationship with Vladimir Putin right now. The fact that one of its uh, most famous business executives is tweeting his thoughts on Ukraine-Russia peace is one thing. It would be an entirely another matter for him to be sort of running that peace proposal by Vladimir Putin. You know, no one elected Elon Musk to anything, and he's entitled to say what he wants. But the idea that he would be running ideas by Vladimir Putin would be pretty bonkers. The 30,000-foot view on this whole thing is it is a sign of Elon Musk's both power and blind spots that and just how he's kind of portrayed himself in, in, in the Russia-Ukraine conflict over the last week or so. I mean, this all started when sort of out of nowhere, um, I think it was on October 3rd, Elon tweets, Ukraine-Russia peace, colon. And then he's got a four-part plan, which uh, he will be running on at, at some point. Includes things like Crimea, formerly staying a part of Russia, but with water supply being assured, Ukraine remaining neutral, redoing elections in the annexed regions under a Ukraine UN supervision, and then Russia leaves if that's what Ukrainians vote for. Regardless of, the, of whether or not Elon is onto something or not, uh, it was widely panned by many people in sort of the the blob, including by Zelensky who did his own poll saying, which Elon Musk do you like more? One who supports Russia or one who supports Ukraine? So basically, the Elon proposal was certainly out of the mainstream. And suddenly, he found himself going from this figure who I think had been kind of celebrated by Ukraine. I mean, uh, Elon had sent Starlink terminals at a cost that he says is about $80 million to SpaceX to Ukraine. And, and Elon had been you know, vocally pro-Ukrainian. And suddenly he is being attacked as a, a Russia stooge, which talking to Vladimir Putin allegedly certainly would cement that image. Yeah, we, we should say that obviously neither of us is Julia Yaffe, who is an expert on this, but it doesn't take more than a cursory understanding of this conflict to understand that the proposal that Elon put forward is just flatly unacceptable to the Ukrainians. I mean, it is essentially giving up their sovereignty of large areas of territory that were part of Ukraine until Russia seized them. And it would also require them to declare neutrality, which would presumably prevent them from ever joining NATO while they have a expansionist, aggressive Russia on their borders and essentially at war with Ukraine for the last seven or eight years now. But it is interesting to me that Elon is the avatar of this. You know, whether or not he spoke to Putin, maybe he spoke to a, a translator, an intermediary, we don't really know. But he does sort of perfectly encapsulate the type of person in Silicon Valley and also on the right who is anti-establishment, who is skeptical of American military interests in the region, and who really is looking for peace and de-escalation at any cost, including the cost of the Ukrainians themselves. Right. I mean, look, the, the reason why Elon's tweeting this now, you know, eight months into the conflict is because 
for a long time, as Julia has written about. This has been a stalemate broadly. And now, you know, the Russian re-escalation in Ukraine, as Julia talked about on the podcast, is reverberating in Silicon Valley. And everyone is trying to assess, like, whether or not Russia's aggression should mean something different for the long-term plan of the region. And look, Elon, you know, sees himself as a brilliant creative thinker. And he's like, maybe I got the proposal here, right? Maybe this is this is the solve. Another sort of reverberation has been Yuri Milner, who is a Russian-born investor, who for a long time was the avatar uh, himself of sort of Russian interests in Silicon Valley, fairly or unfairly. He would say unfairly, but he was backed by Russian and Kremlin-aligned funds very early in his venture capital career, moved to the United States, became a huge investor in Mark Zuckerberg, became a Silicon Valley celebrity. Yuri announced yesterday that he had now formally renounced his Russian citizenship. Um, he said this happened over the summer. And it makes you wonder, like, why is he announcing it on a random Monday in October? And I think the reason, and, and this is, you know, I'm certainly speculating, but the atrocities in Ukraine and, you know, the Russian attacks on Kiev, like, make you want to be clear about where you stand in this war. So I think that every, every Silicon Valley leader right now is responding to global events and whether they're renouncing their citizenship or, or, or floating peace plans they've come up with probably while, while peeing in a urinal. Um, everyone is trying to come up with, with how they see themselves vis-a-vis what people think could be World War III. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we should say that not only is World War III a concern that is hanging over Silicon Valley, but a potential nuclear event too, which um, raises the stakes and is really scary, of course. David Sachs, one of Elon's longtime friends dating back to their time together at PayPal, has been one of the ones who has been beating this drum pretty loudly, warning over and over again on Twitter and on his podcast that continuing to back Ukraine economically and militarily is putting the world on a dangerous escalatory path that could lead to nuclear annihilation. I don't know how widespread that particular fear is in Silicon Valley. Obviously, the industry at the the highest echelons has a long history of obsession around potential um, terrifying apocalyptic tail risk events. You know, we've heard the stories of guys like Peter Thiel seeking citizenship in New Zealand or building bunkers. So like this particular mentality is not necessarily a new development. But I'm also curious, Teddy, if without being too reductive, there is a particular kind of engineer brain at work here. This sort of shared macro utilitarian view that in the long run, all of our political ambitions should center around the future long-term survival of the human race. This is something Elon has obviously talked about himself a fair amount, that, look, let Putin take Ukraine. What we care about is where civilization is going to be 100 years from now. And these sort of pesky moral concerns can kind of be pushed to the wayside. You know, I referenced the blob a couple minutes ago, Ben, and, and tech sees itself as anti-blob, not just the capital B blob with foreign policy, but just like the conventional wisdom that that maybe that the geopolitical, you know, geniuses at the Eurasia group don't really know what they're talking about. And that there's a reason why, you know, the United States went into Iraq. uh, And there's a reason why the United States gets mired in international conflicts in Ukraine. And you sort of see an alignment, you know, I think you mentioned Sachs, like Sachs is a good example of this, an alignment with with sort of you know, the uh, anti-interventionist kind of elements of Trump and Trump's sort of uh, followers, which, you know, who believe that the conventional wisdom is incorrect. And there is an element of engineer brain tier too. And like to, to defend the Silicon Valley creatures that I, that I know and love, I mean, there have obviously been a lot of 
geopolitical mistakes over the last few decades. And maybe you could solve for it by using the principles, at least, of technology and of engineering in a way that protects the long-term future of humanity. And certainly those things can be politically unpopular, right? I mean, Elon Musk does not need to allege that bots have been destroying and voting in his polls um, to know that there is this widespread international condemnation of what he was proposing. But ultimately, like, Elon might still think he's right. I'm sure he still does think he's right. And that doesn't necessarily, you know, make him popular with with the blob and doesn't necessarily make him in the mainstream in, in American culture. But they're comfortable being apostates. They're comfortable being iconoclasts in a way that I think is very Silicon Valley. So we are obviously being reductive. We are obviously stereotyping. But I think there's a kernel of truth there. Yeah, and it goes without saying that, you know, these are really smart guys. David Sachs, Elon Musk, obviously incredibly successful in venture capital, in building successful businesses. But I think there's also like a real and understandable frustration in Washington and among experts who follow these issues closely to see Elon getting involved at this level. He tweeted out a map showing the polling in Ukraine from 2012, where there was more support for pro-Russian political parties and pro-Western political parties. And that map sort of vaguely aligns with the parts of Ukraine that Russia has since bitten off and forcibly annexed. But of course, experts will tell you that those pro-Russian political parties would not have been a referendum on the Ukrainian citizens who might have wanted to join Russia itself. And of course, 2012 was two years before Russia invaded Ukraine, permanently and remarkably changing the political context in that country to become a lot more nationalist and a lot more anti-Russian. So there's just so much nuance that's missing from this argument. Elon Musk can tell to his opinion. Elon Musk can tweet whatever he wants. He can say whatever he wants. And if Elon Musk wants to have polls that offer his worldview to his 100 million followers, like, is that any different than, you know, Ariana Grande going on stage and saying what she thinks about issue X or issue Y? Like, they're celebrities and they can have opinions and tell their fans what they think. I think the difference is when they start getting actually into the muck of maybe trying to solve these things, right? Where if Elon Musk is talking to Vladimir Putin about these, about kind of what he would do in Russia or Ukraine, then I think the responsibility to have your facts right, at least, and to, you know, have the map be dated in the correct year, then the bar for public responsibility, I think, reasonably gets a bit higher. Yeah, we're all for free speech here at Puck. Let's just sign Elon up for Julia Yaffe's newsletter. Sure. Tomorrow will be worse. He, he could learn a thing or two. Teddy, thanks for coming by and explaining all this. Appreciate it. You bet. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 